Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Good to see you today. My name is Josh. If you don't know me, one of the pastors here. And uh, welcome to all of you joining us online. Really glad that you're with us today as well. Uh, you know, it had been uh, just a pretty crazy few days, really a few weeks and months in Jerusalem. This guy named Jesus, who had been uh, preaching and teaching and claiming to be God and the Messiah, was crucified and he was buried and then uh, he rose from the grave three days later to new life. And uh, he spent 40 days with his followers. And at the end of those 40 days, uh, he ascended to heaven and he told them, wait in Jerusalem because I'm sending a helper. I'm sending my spirit who's gonna help you uh, to continue to, to live this out and continue the mission I've given you. And so they wait in Jerusalem and sure enough, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes and uh, descends upon them. About 120 of them all together who were meeting together. And uh, as the spirit empowered them, they begin uh, speaking in languages they never knew before and could never speak before. And preaching the gospel and telling people about this Jesus and, and all that he had done, his life, death, burial, resurrection. And uh, on that first day, after the spirit came, there were 3000 people added to the church. Now, can you imagine going in one day from a church of 120 to 3,120? That's a pretty big jump, wouldn't you say? Well, then over the weeks that followed, uh, more and more people kept coming to faith in Jesus Christ and the church kept growing. And so uh, we saw last week in the beginning part of Acts chapter six, uh, with, with all of these people, there was more organization and more structure needed uh, for this thing to continue on and to thrive. And so a, a new layer of leadership was added and there were deacons who were serving and helping. And one of those guys who they chose was a guy by the name of Stephen. And today we're gonna get to look at Stephen and his story. And uh, we, he, really there's a whole chapter plus that's devoted to telling us a little bit about Stephen. And so we're gonna look at him today and just see how the spirit empowered him and how the spirit empowers us to be uh, gracious with the gospel and uh, to forgive those who've wronged us. And uh, we're trusting the Lord uh, to do uh, that work and show that to us in our own lives and hearts today. So would you pray with me? And then we're gonna be in Acts chapter six this morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. And uh, Jesus, thanks that uh, you came and you uh, entered into this world. You lived the life that we fail to live, a life of holiness and uh, one that's completely honoring to God. And not only that, but then you died the death that we deserve uh, so that we could be forgiven and have that true, eternal, everlasting fullness of life. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, thank you for your work in our life of changing us, coming to help us. And Holy Spirit, I pray that today as we look at your word, you would help me as I teach and unpack it. Uh, teach me even as I, as I teach. And uh, Lord, might you show us in Stephen's life, um, a life uh, that's honoring to you, that's uh, empowered by your spirit and uh, one that we could emulate. So help us today, I pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you got your Bible, you can turn with me to Acts chapter six, and we're gonna cover the rest of chapter six, all of chapter seven today. So we've got a lot, lot to get through. So we should get down to business. But the first thing I want you to see is that the Holy Spirit empowers Stephen and he empowers us. The Holy Spirit is your helper 
You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus said, I'm not leaving you as an orphan, but I'm sending a helper to be with you. I'm sending the spirit. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. God himself, a person of the Trinity, he's, he's in you to help you and empower you to live this life. So uh, let's look at how he does that with Stephen. Here's what we read in Acts chapter six, starting in verse eight. And Stephen, uh, full of grace and power. Now this is, a, this is a great statement about Stephen. He's full of grace. Wouldn't you love to be known as a, a man or a woman who's full of grace? And not only that, but he's full of power all because of the Spirit's work in his life. Uh, earlier in uh, the chapter six of Acts in verses three and five, we read also that Stephen was full of the Spirit, that he was full of wisdom, that he was full of faith. And then we read this, that he was doing great wonders and signs among the peoples. Uh, he's, the, he's the first guy who's not an apostle to be recorded as having performed miracles in Acts. And in a moment, we're gonna see he's the first guy recorded whose, whose sermon is recorded in Acts who's not an apostle. But what I want you to see here is that the Holy Spirit empowers Stephen. He's filled him with, uh, with wisdom and faith and grace and power. And ultimately, with, these are gifts of grace. You know, uh, the Holy Spirit similarly gives to each of us who trusted Christ gifts of grace. He does. He's, he's gifted you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've become a Christian, congratulations, you're gifted. God's given you gifts through his spirit so that you would glorify God and serve the church and, and bring good to others and that you yourself would have joy. Uh, Peter writes about this in First Peter in his first letter. He says, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It's a gift of grace. So whoever speaks, then speak as one who speaks oracles of God. If you serve, serve as one with the strength that God supplies so that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus. Friends, you have gifts. You do, if you're a follower of Jesus. The question is, are you uh, using them? Because the spirit empowers those as you uh, trust Christ and as you walk with him, to, to do good. Hey, if you haven't signed up for SHAPE yet for that mini retreat, I really encourage you to. February 25th, Saturday morning, 9 a.m. to noon. It's gonna be a fun morning. Basically, middle school and up or would benefit from it. And uh, we're just looking at spiritual gifts and it's gonna be kind of fast-paced, a lot of self-discovery, personality, abilities. Um, really encourage you to come and maybe just explore a little bit how God has shaped you uniquely and some of those gifts of grace He's given to you. Um, this morning, we're gonna see Stephen demonstrate some of his gifts. So let's keep reading. We, we, we read already that uh, he was filled with uh, grace and power, with faith and wisdom. He was doing signs and wonders. Uh, the spirit was through him. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, we're not really sure who these guys are, but it's speculated and assumed by uh, most of the scholars I read this week that they were uh, likely uh, either a group of Jewish slaves or children of those slaves who had been freed by Rome. And then they gathered in Jerusalem uh, to form a synagogue known as the freedmen. And then there were also others, uh, Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia, uh, Cyrene, Alexandria are in Northern Africa. Cilicia is kind of Southern Turkey on the Mediterranean Sea. It's where the apostle Paul, or still at this time, Saul is from. So he's likely among this group. And they rose up and disputed with Stephen. They picked a fight with him. I mean, Stephen was doing all these things, right? He had been appointed to serve and he's using his gifts and God's using him in powerful ways. And uh, now they're disputing with him and they've kind of picked a fight with him. But here's the deal. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This tells me not only was Stephen full of the spirit and full of wisdom and faith and grace and power, he was a, a good debater as well. 
Like he was able to just hold his own when it came to some of uh, the arguments that were brought to him. Uh, and so uh, since they couldn't win, they came up with a bunch of bogus claims against him. They secretly instigated men who would say, oh, we've heard him speak. Uh, he said blasphemous things about Moses and about God. Now keep those two things in mind because these are the two things in a moment we're gonna see Stephen defend. Uh, that he was uh, blasphemous against Moses and he is blasphemous against God. Uh, they couldn't win the debate, so they stirred up all these bogus claims. You know, it still happens today, doesn't it? Except maybe in greater measure and a lot quicker, <laughs> thanks to social media. I mean, you can find anything to get into a frenzy about if you spend about five minutes online. Uh, reminds me, don't believe everything you read on social media and be careful what you post yourself. Uh, honor Jesus in that. Ironically, I'm guessing there's probably a few groups on Facebook, I didn't look, who even share that same name, the Freedmen, and they're out picking fights. Wouldn't surprise me, would it you? Let's keep looking. Or keep reading, excuse me. Verse 12, and so this group, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon Stephen and they seized him and they, they brought him before the council. Who's the council? Well, the council is the Sanhedrin, the ruler, the Jewish rulers of that day, the, the Jewish high court of justice. And uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, this is just kind of an architectural sketch of what the place where they met might have looked like. That was known as the Chamber of Hewn Stone in the edge of Herod's temple. And there were 70 of them plus the high priests, so 71. And uh, likely, you know, 35 on one side, 35 on the other, the high priest in the middle, and then whoever was accused stood before them and gave their account. So uh, this is similar to the scene when Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin and when Peter and John and now when Stephen is appearing before this council. He's been arrested by them. And this council could decide almost any fate of its people, of the Jewish people. Rome gave them that authority except for the death penalty, which was reserved uh, for the Romans to decide. And so the court met within this chamber inside Herod's temple and as they brought Stephen before them, they set up false witnesses. And they said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, against the temple, and against the law, Moses' law. So against God's temple and Moses' law. Again, it's blaspheming against God and against Moses. I mean, we've heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You know, we're gonna see a lot of parallels here between Stephen and Jesus. Um, here we see Stephen being accused before the same Sanhedrin that Jesus was accused before, uh, having the same charges even brought against him that were brought against Jesus. In Matthew 26, it said, we read this, that now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. Well, we just read, that's what they're doing with Stephen, right? And uh, verse 60, they found none though, so many false witnesses came forward. Same as Stephen. And at last two came forward and they said, this, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. They're saying, Stephen's saying the same thing. You see all these parallels between Stephen's life and Jesus's life. Of course, Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. Rather, he said that the Jews would destroy the temple, his temple, his body, referring to that. And so likely Stephen was just repeating some of these claims that Jesus had made. But he definitely reflects Jesus here because the spirit was at work in Stephen's life. Not only had the Spirit empowered him with gifts of grace like he does you and I, but the Spirit was empowering him to become more and more like Jesus. I wonder, is that true about your life? If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've been walking with him, are you becoming more like him? I mean, that's, that's really the work of the Spirit. That's how you know by bearing fruit that, yeah, I've really trusted him because I'm, I'm not the same person I was five years ago. Now, uh, your growth is likely not, it'd be awesome if it was, right? If it was just like up and to the right exponentially, growing to be like Jesus. 
I know mine's not, it's, it's been more of a squiggly line like this. But the overall trajectory is growing to be more like Christ. What about in your life? Is, it, is, it, is that the overall trajectory of your life? If so, rejoice. If not, then you need to say, okay, well, where do I need to repent and follow after him? Or do I need to repent for the first time and I've never really given my life to him? And I challenge you to. Uh, the Holy Spirit then enables growth in you and conforms you into the image of God's son, of Jesus. That's what Paul says. He, he said, uh, for those whom he foreknew, he looked out from eternity past, he saw you, knowing you would trust him and his design, his plan for you is to make you more and more like his son each day that you walk with him, to conform you into the image of his son. Paul also talks about to the Colossians, putting on your new self. You've been made new if you've trusted Jesus. And that, that new self is being renewed into the image of Jesus, into the image of your creator. Well, uh, Stephen um, literally began to reflect Christ, not just in his character and in his walk, but look at this. See, he was in the Sanhedrin, everyone was gazing at him. They're kind of leaning in, maybe wondering, okay, what's he gonna say? How is he gonna answer this? You know, all these accusations made against him. And all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In other words, his face started glowing with the glory of God. Now, I don't know that your face is gonna start glowing like an angel as you follow Jesus. Maybe the spirit will do that in your life. I don't know, who's to know? But he will and can do that in your character, right? And will continue to grow you in that way and maybe even take you through some really hard things to help you grow in that way. But Stephen here reflects the face of an angel. He reflects God's glory. And it brings kind of two stories from the Bible to mind. First is Moses. There's this guy in the Old Testament named Moses who God used, we're gonna read about him some more here in a minute, to lead his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And he gets to Mount Sinai where God gives him the law, the 10 commandments. And when Moses comes down after meeting with God, we read that his face was glowing and shining with the glory of God. So much so that he wore a veil over his head. Well, it's curious that Stephen starts glowing here because all, most of the guys that, well, all the guys who he's standing before and giving this testimony had great reverence for Moses. But some of them, the majority of them who were Sadducees had incredible reverence for Moses. In fact, they would argue that the only part of the Bible that was really the Bible is the part that Moses wrote, the first five books. And so when they see him glowing, there's no doubt in my mind that some of them started to go, that's kind of like Moses. The, the second thing is that um, uh, Stephen's uh, reflection here of God's glory reminds me of Jesus' own reflection of God's glory at his transfiguration. With Peter, James, and John, and uh, suddenly he's shown with the glory of God. And Stephen's life, simply who he was, it reflected Jesus even to his enemies here. And so can you, he, he can empower you. And he does empower you, the spirit does. Like Stephen, to be gracious, yet firm with the gospel. To be gracious, yet firm. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, let's go in uh, reverse order. First by firm, I don't mean firm like, uh, like being brash. You know, in other words, not being a Bible thumper. Do you know what I mean by that? The people who just, they come up with, they just thump people on the head with their Bible. Not with any kind of grace or any kind of love. They're just jerks about it. That's not what I'm talking about when I say stand firm. I mean, stand firm in the truth of God's word. Standing firm in your faith. Stand firm thus in the Lord, Paul says, right? Just sharing God's story and being confident in it and in your own story. But then doing it in a gracious way to speak the truth, but to do it with love and with grace. So you're not, you're not out to win an argument, you're to win people, right? To win people. So the Holy Spirit is who empowers us to stand firm in the gospel, but also be gracious in how we present it. And Stephen is full of God's 
spirit. He's full of grace and he's full of power. We just read, right? So he's gracious and he's gonna be firm. And he's here before the Sanhedrin and we're gonna see how this plays out with Stephen. The high priest uh, said uh, to Stephen, so are, are these things so? Is this true? What do you have to say for yourself? Kind of thing, right? And now Stephen gives his defense, but notice something about Stephen. He gives his defense, but he doesn't get defensive. He isn't really defending himself as much as he's defending the gospel. Watch what he says. He does this by tracing God's story through the Old Testament and making the case that Jesus is the one that all of the Old Testament points to. So here's what he says. Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, I wanna stop here for just a minute. Notice he references the God of glory and we keep in mind as Stephen's saying this, his face is shining with God's glory. Which tells me sometimes we're gonna see Stephen say some pretty intense things, but I don't think he's saying it like shaking his fist and thumping people on the head. I think he's saying it with passion and with conviction, but I think generally in, I mean, his face is shining in a winsome way, in a gracious way. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And, and he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and Go into the land, go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Here's what Stephen's doing. He's, he's going back into Genesis and he's starting to trace God's story through the Old Testament. And so what he just described here, I'm just gonna show you on a map so that you can kind of track along. Uh, Abram, Abraham was from this area, this city called Ur. I don't know how it got its name. I don't know if like somebody said, hey, Abraham, where are you from? And he stuttered. He's like, Ur, oh, Ur, cool. And so he never got to really tell what it was. But he's from this place called Ur, right? And God calls him. He says, Abraham, I want you to follow me and uh, get up and follow me. So Abraham gets up and follows him in his 70s. And he goes and he follows him and he goes up to a place called Haran. In, in modern, I should have put maybe some countries on top of this for you. This is modern day Turkey, or Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran. That's the area we're looking at here. And this would be Israel right through here. He goes to Haran and when his father dies, then God continues his journey and takes him here down to Israel. Where Stephen says, that's where we are living right now. Abraham was here. Yet, uh, God gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot's length. But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, even though Abraham in his 70s didn't yet have a child. God miraculously, we know, provided for him and Sarah to have a son. And so God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would end up becoming sojourners in a land belonging to others, so in a foreign land. He would have kids, he would have a great number of descendants, but they're gonna end up not staying here the whole time. They're actually gonna be uh, refugees in a foreign place. And this place is gonna end up enslaving them and afflicting them for 400 years. This is predicted to Abraham by God, by the way, in Genesis chapter 15. But God says, even though uh, they're taken, they're gonna be in Egypt is where they're going, by the way, for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they serve. I'm gonna judge Egypt, God says. And after that, they'll come out and they'll worship me in this place. Stephen's recounting with a shining face all of God's promises here from the Old Testament and the storyline of the Old Testament, because that's exactly what happens. Abraham has Isaac, who has Jacob, who has 12 sons, and one of those is Joseph, and they end up in Egypt, and they're there for 400 years, and they end up coming back to that place to worship God. 
And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Just shared this with you. And then Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. You've got a little chart on your handout just to kind of visualize this. If you're like me, you kind of like maybe pictures sometimes. So you've got Abraham. And from Abraham, this promise came through Isaac. And then from Isaac, we get Jacob, he has two sons, but the promise comes through Jacob. And Jacob, we know, had 12 sons, the 12 patriarchs, as uh, Stephen was just saying. That's who he's talking about, is Jacob's 12 sons. And he goes on giving his defense. He says, the patriarchs, they were jealous of Joseph. Who's Joseph? Well, Joseph is one of those 12, one of their brothers, one of Jacob's sons. And so they sold him into Egypt. Do any of you have a little dysfunction in your family? I think we all probably do, right? We could all raise our hands. But how about to this degree where you've got 11 brothers and they decide they're gonna sell you into slavery and then make up a story and tell your dad that you were killed by a wild animal. Friends, God uses messed up people like you and me, doesn't he? which is, I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. That's great news that God loves us and does that work. But uh, they were jealous with him and uh, they sent him into Egypt. But check this out. This is, I have this highlighted in my Bible, but God was with him. But God was with him. Joseph, after all of this takes place, what we're gonna see here in a moment, in the end of Genesis, Joseph says, y'all meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So I don't know what you're facing today or this week. Maybe there's been things that have happened to you at the hand of someone else or just life in general has happened. And you need to know that that in the midst of it, God is with you. He sees and he knows and he cares. And he can and will, as you trust him, work that for good somehow, some way in your life If not now, then in the end. He promises that. And that's a promise for us as well. God is with us. And notice he rescued Joseph then out of all of his afflictions. He ended up in prison. He he had all kinds of crazy stuff happen to him and ended up to where he gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who ended up making Joseph a ruler over Egypt and over his entire household. It's a pretty remarkable turnaround that God orchestrates in Joseph's life. And then there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers, they could find no food, meaning the sons of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all their descendants, there was was no food to be had in, in Israel. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, see, God had miraculously put Joseph in this place of power and given him incredible wisdom to provide for all the surrounding nations during this famine. And so eventually everybody ends up in Egypt. He sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph himself, or Joseph, excuse me, made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. This is how the book of Genesis ends. And it's incredible And Joseph sent and he summoned his father, Jacob, and all of his family. And there were 75 people in all who came. And Jacob went back down into Egypt and he ended up dying there, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, a place in Israel, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver. He just is, he's going through all these events. He's just kind of preaching the Old Testament to these guys. And I'm guessing they're all sitting around going, yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. We've read that, we know that. And uh, so again, just by way of review, Jacob, he had his 12 sons and because of his son, Joseph, what they meant for evil, God worked for good and everyone eventually makes their way to Egypt. And they're gonna be there for 400 years. But when the time of the promise drew near, the promise God had made to Abraham, the people increased and they multiplied in Egypt. So they started with 75 and it grew, you can imagine over four centuries to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. 
And they multiplied until there arose over Egypt another king who didn't remember anything about Joseph. Because that first king, right, that Pharaoh had been good to Joseph and now there's one who doesn't. And so what happens is he ends up enslaving all these people, fearful that they're gonna rebel against Egypt and take over. And they're put into slavery and there's harsh demands put on them. And he dealt shrewdly with our race, with the Jewish people. And he, he forced our fathers to expose their infants so they wouldn't be kept alive. See, he was so fearful of God's people increasing in number. If you don't know this story, uh, Pharaoh actually commanded that all of the, uh, the male children born to the Israelites should be snatched up as soon as they were born and murdered. Just horrific. Well, it was at this time, Stephen says, Moses was born. In the midst of all of this genocide, and notice though, Moses was beautiful in God's sight. You know, uh, Moses was originally set for execution as an infant, but he was beautiful in God's sight. You know, this tells me uh, God loves the unborn. He loves children. He loves you. That every human being, no matter their age, intellect, from conception to the grave, are beautiful to God. He loves you and cares deeply about you and he loves the unborn and they're beautiful to him. And uh, Moses uh, lived and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. It's an incredible story. Uh, you should go read it if you don't know in Exodus. And when he was exposed, uh, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And, and he lives and he grows up in Pharaoh's house. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and in his deeds. So again, we've got Joseph and because of Joseph, everybody ends up in Egypt and uh, as they're there, then uh, God raises up this guy, Moses. Miraculously rescues him, has a plan for him from the very beginning, has him grow up in Pharaoh's house. And what we're gonna see is that not only did God raise up Moses, he's raising up a greater Moses. So uh, let's keep reading, verse 23. When he was 40 years old, Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house. He gets to be about 40 and God puts a call on his life. He puts it in his heart to go and visit uh, the Israelites who are enslaved by Pharaoh. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Moses kills this guy who's uh, being brutal to one of the Israelites. And Stephen tells us that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Moses thought, surely they're gonna see God's put this in my heart to care for his people and uh, he's gonna use me to rescue them. And so surely they're gonna see that. But notice they didn't understand. They didn't understand. See, um, like Jesus, Moses is gonna be rejected over and over and over by God's people. And it starts here. They fail to recognize the gift that God gave them in him and uh, his desire to give more to them through him. And remember, Stephen is telling all this and he's connecting the dots for the Sanhedrin who had accused him, you're blaspheming Moses. And so Stephen tells this story, now he's getting to Moses. And what he's gonna be doing is connecting the dots between Moses' life and Jesus' life and how everything about Jesus is actually, Jesus is the greater Moses. It's not blaspheming Moses, it's fulfilling all that Moses pointed towards. They didn't understand and so on the following day, he appealed to them, Moses did. As they were quarreling and he, tried to reconcile them saying, men, you're, you're brothers. Why do you do each other wrong? 
and, and again, like Jesus, Moses here will be rejected, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You know, a lot of people say that to Jesus still today. Who, who made you a ruler or a judge over me? We don't want you to rule over us. And then the, it says to Moses, do you want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And now Moses becomes fearful. And uh, at this, at this retort, Moses fled and he became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. He gets out of town because he knows he's not safe anymore. They've rejected him. They, he's in danger. He's, he's gone. Now, obviously, too, Moses had sinned and he was afraid of that sin now being known. So there's dual dynamics here at play, but God's at work. He goes to Midian, has a couple sons, and when another 40 years had passed, now Moses is 80, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Maybe that's one of the things you know Moses for, the burning bush, right? And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at its sight, and he drew near to look, and there came the voice of the Lord. He said this, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and didn't dare to look. I believe this is actually Jesus speaking to Moses here through the bush. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. See, God sees your affliction, friend, just like he saw theirs and he knows and he cares. And then Stephen goes on. Um, he starts making the case that the one they rejected as both a ruler and redeemer, Moses, he was sent by God. And he's implying the whole time, and by the way, so is Jesus, whom you've rejected. He says, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hands of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And, and this man, he, he led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. He's implying again, this Jesus, he's leading us out from the oppression of sin and he performed all kinds of wonders and signs. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. These are Moses' words. He predicts this and prophesies this. Moses himself knew that God was sending someone greater, that he was sending a Messiah, that he was sending Jesus. And this is Moses' prediction that there's somebody greater than me coming. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him and they thrust him aside and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, back to their sin. And all the while, again, Stephen here makes the case, look, I didn't, Blaspheme Moses. Moses was pointing to Jesus. You're, you're the ones who've blasphemed Moses because you've rejected the one he prophesied about. And then he goes on not only to make the case that he didn't blaspheme Moses, but that he didn't blaspheme God either. Uh, look ahead to verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. This is the tabernacle. It was a mobile worship center that they would tear down and set up as they traveled across the wilderness out of Egypt toward the promised land. And it was a place where, uh, where God met with his people and where they would worship him. And uh, it was uh, spoken, directed to Moses how it should be created. And then our fathers in turn, he said later, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers as they're coming into the promised land. 
in the book of Joshua. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who ended up building a house for him. So we've gone from the tabernacle now of God's presence and now to the temple. And in 2 Samuel 7, uh, relates God's answers to David of wanting to build a house. He said to David, when you die, I'm gonna raise up one of your descendants, David. Just like Moses knew there was somebody coming after him. Now so does David. And I'll make his kingdom strong. He's the one who will build a house, speaking here of Solomon, a temple for my name. But ultimately there's a promise for somebody to sit on David's throne, namely Jesus. Stephen goes on though, no most high doesn't dwell in houses made by hands like the prophet says, heaven's my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Why does he go into all this? Well, remember David was accused, or excuse me, Stephen was accused of blaspheming Moses and then blaspheming God saying he's gonna tear down the temple. The temple will be destroyed. Stephen's like, well, one, I didn't say that. Two, the temple's just a building. It's an important one. But God is transcendent from the temple. He's transcendent over all of that. He's God. I mean, where's my place of rest? Didn't I make all these things, God said? And now Stephen gets to the point and he starts using language from the Old Testament toward these religious leaders. He said, these are things God said to his people in the past. You stiff-necked people. It's pretty strong imagery, isn't it? You ever had a stiff neck? You can't turn, you can't really look a different direction hardly. The idea is that, that spiritually they're stiff-necked. They refuse to turn and acknowledge what's right next to them come to faith in Christ. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you, you always resist the Holy Spirit. See, the work of the Holy Spirit, friend, is to always glorify Jesus Christ and to draw people toward him, to repent, to turn to him. And when you refuse to do that and refuse his call on your life, you're resisting the Holy Spirit and you yourself are stiff-necked. Don't be that way. Don't be that way. As your fathers did, Stephen goes on, so do you. I mean, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He's saying, you guys all killed, you killed all the prophets. <laughs> you hated them, even though they were speaking for God, which happens over and over in the Old Testament. If you were a good prophet, watch out, because that meant somebody was probably coming after you. and any of those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one of Jesus. And Stephen's drawing the parallel, and now you're coming after me because I'm preaching the same thing. See, uh, Stephen knew God's story, and he was empowered by the Spirit with these gifts of grace and power to, to articulate it in a gracious way, yet in a firm way. I wonder, do you know God's story? Are you able to do that? Stephen clearly knew the Old Testament pretty well, didn't he? I mean, he just marched through it all there in one chapter. How well do you know God's story and your story as it relates to God's story? Let me try to help you with that briefly and give you just a four-part story of God's story that might be helpful for you to be able to, to think through. The first part is this. You can break all of history, all of God's story and of the Bible into four parts. The first part is creation. See, in the beginning, God created everything and it was good. And there was perfect relationship between God and humanity and humanity with each other. And God placed him in the garden and he gave him one rule, right? One rule, don't eat from the tree in the middle. Have dominion over all of it, have a blast, rule over all of it, don't eat from this tree. And, and sometimes we think of all of God's commands being so restrictive, yet in fact, uh, he gave incredible freedom because the garden isn't like the garden in your backyard. It's more like a national park, like Yellowstone or something. One tree. He gives incredible freedom. Yet Adam and Eve do what you and I would have done. They eat from the tree. They were lied to by the enemy and they believed the lie. 
And uh, so they eat from the tree and suddenly shame and death and guilt and all of that rush into this world and everything gets jacked up, including you and I. Yet before God ever gives a consequence for their sin, he promises a fix. In Genesis 3.15, if you remember the gospel is John 3.16, back up one and go to Genesis 3.15. It's the first gospel. God promises to send one who will crush the head of the serpent. And then the rest of the Old Testament is tracing that promise. Who's this gonna be? And how are they gonna come? And now Stephen in his message is saying, well, that one is Jesus, which brings us to part three. It's the rescue. Jesus is the one who's gonna rescue and who has rescued us. It's just a choice whether or not you would accept that rescue. Whether you'd grab hold of the life raft and the the ring that was thrown to you as you're drowning. And then the rest of the Bible, Acts to Revelation is about restoration, about God restoring things to his original intent for creation. He's in the process of doing that now. And one day he's gonna do it completely when Jesus returns. And that'll be a good day. So there's just a simple way maybe to know God's story and to to increase your knowledge of it like Stephen's. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. Well, Stephen preaches all this. And if you share that with people, chances are you may be rejected like Stephen was and like Jesus was. But just as we wrap up here, what's incredible in Stephen's example is that he forgives his enemies. It's another work of the spirit in his life to forgive those who've wronged him. See, when they heard these things, after Stephen, you know, he, he taught all this and they're all tracking along, oh yeah, that's good. And then he said, and by the way, y'all killed all the prophets, you killed Jesus, and now you're coming after me. You're the ones who are in the wrong, not me. They were enraged, enraged. They ground their teeth at him. You ever been so mad you just grit your teeth? I mean, that's all these guys around Stephen in this moment. But I want you to notice something about Stephen. Uh, They were enraged, but uh, Stephen's response is a good response that we should have in kind of the age of outrage we all live in, where everybody seems to get so fired up and outraged about anything at just the drop of a hat. Stephen uh, was controlled by the Spirit. He was full of self-control, a fruit of the Spirit. And we see that really evident here in his life. Stephen doesn't join in their rage, but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He kept his head up towards God and he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, uh, this is a pretty incredible thing uh, you need to notice, which is Jesus' posture here. You know, every other time Jesus is mentioned uh, near the right hand of God, he's referred to as being seated there in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. He's seated at God's right hand. Why does Stephen see him standing? Well, I think Luke is wanting to tell us here and remind us that uh, when you face death, you're not alone. If you face it for your faith, especially, you're not alone. Jesus isn't seated in that moment. He stands up ready to welcome Stephen home. You know, uh, Psalm 116 says that the death of his saints is precious in the eyes of the Lord. And when his children die, that's precious to him. And, And he greets all of his children, I believe, in the same way. And what a better way to be greeted than by Jesus standing to welcome you home. That he would honor us and love us that much. And so Stephen said, behold, I I see the heavens opened and the son of man, he's standing at the right hand of God, but they wouldn't hear it. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears, kind of like a toddler. And I don't want to hear it. And they just run and rush at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Keep that name in mind. He's going to show up here in a couple weeks. And as they were stoning Stephen, again, he reflects Jesus and the Holy Spirit empowers him to even forgive his enemies. 
Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Same thing Jesus cried out from the cross. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this against them. Jesus said of those who were nailing him to the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when he had said this, Stephen fell asleep and he died. We read in the next few verses, there was this young guy named Saul who approved of everything that was happening and continued to persecute and torment the church. But as we wrap up this morning, I just wanna leave you with a few questions. And just which one maybe would the Holy Spirit impress on your heart this morning? You know, first off, the Holy Spirit empowers us. If you're a follower of Jesus, he empowers you. He gives you gifts. Are Are you using them? Do you know them? Are you using them for God's glory and the good of others? And are you getting joy from that? If not, come to shape in a few weeks. We'd love to help you discover some of those things. The second thing is he empowers us to be gracious and firm with the gospel. Maybe, uh, maybe you need to know God's story more. You need to grow in that. Or maybe there's just somebody you know that God's brought to mind even this morning that you need to share the story of the gospel with. Who is that person? Somebody shared it with you one time, remember? Who do you need to share it with? Or maybe uh, God's speaking to your heart on this last one, that the Holy Spirit would empower you to forgive someone. Is there somebody that comes to mind that you just need to forgive and quit holding on to and becoming bitter, but not to forget what happened. I'm not saying that. But to quit holding it over them and entrapping your own heart. You know, I found um, that when uh, people have wronged me, one of the most healing things is when I can uh, begin to trust the Spirit, remember Jesus' words, that he forgives those even who don't know what they're doing. And by his grace, because I can't do it on my own, I don't have that in me, but by his grace, learn to forgive even from my own heart. Maybe one of those things, the Spirit's speaking to you this morning. Let me pray. And there'll be people available to pray with you up front and at tables in the back. We're gonna sing uh, that new song one last time and then call it a morning. Let's pray.